welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Again. Oh, that was pitiful. You guys have been doing pretty good. Good morning. All right, that's better. We don't sleep at church. That's not okay. We're at Matthew 21 this morning. If you want to get to turn there, and while you turn there, I've got to I've got to talk about another TV show. I know what you're thinking. Brian, all you do, for example, is TV shows. Well, I know three things. I know history, which is boring. I know farm equipment, which is probably not very relatable. And I know TV shows. So you get lots of TV show examples. Do you guys remember the show Home Improvement? You guys remember that? Oh, everybody's smiling. One of the best shows ever. Tim Allen played a character called Tim the Toolman Taylor, and he had his wife, Jill, and three kids. And, and Tim the Toolman Taylor was a handyman. He, was, he actually had a TV show where he told people how to fix things. But Tim the Toolman Taylor had a problem. He was never satisfied. And you guys might remember that Tim the Toolman Taylor always wanted more what? More power. That's right. It was always more power. I remember a couple of episodes, and, and it never worked out well for him. One of them, he decided his lawnmower wasn't powerful enough. And so he pulled that thing in the garage, and he took a motor out of a car and set this thing up. It looked like a motorcycle coming out here with the exhaust pipes everywhere. He said, I can mow the whole yard in less than 20 seconds with this thing. And then he drives it straight through a fence because it's too powerful to actually turn. But my favorite one, my favorite one, because I, I think that as I get older, this maybe describes me and my wife just a little bit. Jill is in the kitchen, and she opens the dishwasher, and she goes, oh, this dishwasher just doesn't clean anything anymore. And you see Tim sitting on the couch, and that head whips around, and he goes, he does that weird sound thing. And she goes, Tim, no. No. He goes, I, I can fix it. And she says, no, I don't want you to do this. You will blow up my house. He said, it just needs a little bit more power. She said, Tim, promise me you won't fix it. Oh, fine. And so he promises her. But like all men, he was found, found himself unattended not very long. He was walking through the kitchen, and you see him, and he does this double take. He stops him, hmm, at that dishwasher. And he has this conversation with himself, like, she'll never know. Or, or it'll wash so good that, that, that she'll, she'll be happy that I did this. And he goes just one little, just a little bit more power. And he goes and he buys this giant motor or whatever it is for this dishwasher and puts it in there. And as Jill's putting the dishes in there, she comes up, she bends over, puts some dishes in there, pops up and goes, Tim, have you been messing with my dishwasher? Oh, no, no, not me. I, I, I didn't mess with it. Tim, but, well, he said, try it one time and see how it works. And so she comes over to the dishwasher. She pushes the button and she jumps away from it. And it works fine. And he goes, see, I told you I fixed it. And about that time, the whole cabinet blows up. Tim! Now, the reason that I like that show is I think that it, it gives us an insight into the reality of what it's like to be a man. Men like to fix things. And ladies, if you're honest... We end up messing up things more than we actually fix them sometimes. Isn't that right? Everybody's kind of chuckling at that. But I think there was an unattended truth in here in the character of Tim the Toolman Taylor that really describes not just men but mankind is that mankind always thinks that we need more. We have to have, no matter how much we have, it's always more. I need, I need more money. I need more things. 
I need a bigger house. I need more respect. More, 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 more. And it all really comes down to one thing. More power. And that's what we're going to assess in ourselves this morning. Do we have a heart that still cries out, even as we follow Christ, that cries out for more and more and more, more power? We've been in a series called uh, Going Through the Motions, and we've been looking at this relationship between Jesus and the religious elites of the time, the, the, the chief priests. And Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's coming in and He's teaching, and He's challenging the way things have been done. And then you have the chief priests who are the embodiment of a heart that desires more and more power. And of course, this leads to a lot of conflict because these religious leaders are scared that Jesus' teachings and Jesus' ministry will take away from their personal power. So there's this conversation going on, and you can kind of see the tensions and the conflict between Jesus Christ as his desires are completely opposite of those of the religious leaders. And last week, we, we ended the conversation. Jesus drops a bomb on them. He, he tells them, he said, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He said, they're going into the kingdom of heaven before you. You who are righteous, you who are as close to holy as you can get through your actions. He said, I desire their heart more than I do your actions. And that's where we're at this week. So let's read this. Jesus is going to give them another parable. Chapter 21, we're going to read verses 33 through 43. Jesus speaking here. He says, hear another parable. Parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and lent it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard, vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? The, the chief priest answered back. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out of his vineyard to other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner and is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, Jesus sets up this parable, this story, in terms they can understand culturally. And luckily, as a small town in Arkansas, we have a relatively common culture with them. We, we don't grow vines, but we have a lot of farming in this area. So what you have, for the sake of this argument, is you have an owner of a vineyard, and we'll call him a farmer. He, he spends all of this time creating this perfect vineyard. He, he puts his crops in, he takes care of it, and then he leaves and goes away. While he's gone, somebody has to take care of the vineyard, correct? So so he hires people to come take care of his vineyard while he is absent. When it is time for the harvest, he sends servants up there. He said, go take the fruits. The idea is that you take the fruits, you probably take them somewhere, sell them, and bring me the money back. But when the servants come, and they're going to get the fruit, the people who have been taking care of the vineyard, they see them coming. It says that they kill, beat, and stone these three servants. Now the owner is way more patient than I am. He, he, he makes this conscious decision. He says, okay, I'll try again. 
he sends a bigger group of servants and he says, go, go get the fruit, go take it and sell it and bring me the money back. And the husbandmen, what we are going to call the vine dressers from now on, the people who work in the, in the vineyard, they beat them the same. And finally, the owner says, one more chance. One more time, I said, I'm going to send my son. I hired these people to take care of my property, and they, they will respect my son, even if they don't respect my servants. But as the sun comes down the road, the, the vine dressers, the people taking care of the vineyard, gather together, and they see him and said, this is the guy who's going to inherit all of this. This, this huge vineyard, this beautiful place, this belongs to him. If we kill him, maybe we can get it. And so they kill the son. Now Jesus poses a question to the chief priest after telling this story. He says, when the owner finally comes after he's had two groups of servants and his son murdered by these people that work for him, what's he going to do? Now the chief priests are very pious. They're, they're, they're very up, uptight. They know all the right and wrong answers. And they are furious, fuming. They huff out. When he gets there, he's going to kill them. And then he's going to give that vineyard to someone who will take care of it and who will serve him. That's the right answer. That's what Jesus wanted them to say, but it's also the wrong answer. Because the, Pharisee, or the chief priest didn't realize at this time, Jesus was talking about them. He said, you are the vine dressers. You are the ones who have done this. And he said, this is exactly what's going to happen to you. So when Jesus asks this question, he's trying to point them to a bigger truth that they somehow missed. Now let's try to frame this story out a little bit more and see what the point Jesus is really getting to here. Now if you frame this story at first, you notice it starts with a lot of details. And it almost seems like pointless. I love seemingly pointless details in the scripture. And now notice I said seemingly pointless. Because everything in God's word is put there for a purpose. And so when something seems like it's not a big deal, God with his holy hand made sure that these details were put in there. Listen to what Jesus said about this guy, this guy that had the vineyard. He said he planted the vineyard. He put all of the fruit there. He hedged it, meaning he trimmed it up, got all the brush out of the way. He dug or built a wine press. Chances are that was probably made out of stone and would have had to been hand-carved at that time. And he built a tower to oversee and to protect his vineyard. What we get a picture of in these details is someone who takes a lot of care into building something beautiful. He had worked diligently to make something amazing. Now that's important because it tells us how precious this place is to the person who made it. Some of you grew up on farms. Some of you grew up farming and you know what it means to put your sweat and your tears and your blood into a plot of ground to see something grown out of it, to, to, to make a living on it. And doesn't that bring a lot of pride when you put all this effort into something and then you get something out of it. You're very protective of it. And Jesus wants us to know that that is how, that is how the owner, in this case God, is looking at this. Now as he leaves, he leaves it to the vine dressers. And the idea is that they're going to care for it. They're going to uh, take care of his per precious place. But there are expectations. The expectation is you take care of it, but when I come back, I'm going to get the profit from my vineyard. We know that because he sent people back to get the money. This brings us to our first take-home truth up here on the screen. Listen, God has entrusted his workers with the responsibility of something precious. God has entrusted his workers with, this, with the responsibility of something precious. Several years ago, I was asked to, asked to house sit for a family friend. They were going out of town, and they had some animals, and they wanted their house taken care of. They wanted somebody living in it, and this was awesome for me. I was still living at home, and I was 
was given reign of this entire house. I asked, can I have my friends over? And they said, yes. So now I have a house to bring my friends to. I didn't have any friends to come over, but I could have anyway. That's the point. My friends could have came over. I asked, can I eat the food? They said, every bit of food in the fridge is yours. And so for like a week and a half, I lived in this giant house that wasn't mine, eating their food, doing what I pleased. Um, I ate ice cream for supper. I watched anything I wanted to on TV. It was a great time. But the point of me staying at the house was never for me to take care or for me to have fun in the house. The main point of it, even though I was entrusted with the house and told I could use it, the main point of it is, is when the owners came home, they wanted to make sure their animals had not died of starvation or dehydration. They wanted to make sure their house had not been broken into or burned down, and they wanted to make sure that it was as clean as they left. See, sometimes God entrusts us with things that are for our benefit, but it serves a larger purpose at the end of the day. And that's, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make to the chief priest here. You notice the characters that Jesus used are specifically identified as workers. They're not identified as children. They're not neighbors. They're not friends. Jesus makes a point that he leaves it to workers who are supposed to take care of it in the meantime. So we know that God leaves or God entrusts his workers with a responsibility. It's more than just having. It's a responsibility. For the vine dressers, their job was to prune and train the vines and grow the fruit. But Jesus is not talking legitimately about vine dressers. He's talking about the chief priest. And their job is, is pretty close to that. Their job is to train the masses to serve God and, and to grow spiritual fruit. Now this also has an application for us because what is our job as Christians? Train the masses to serve God and grow spiritual fruit. So as Jesus is talking to the chief priests, we can rest assured because it's in God's word preserved for us to this day that he's also talking to you and me, to churches modern day, and because we are sitting in Ramsey Heights Baptist Church, specifically he's speaking to Ramsey Heights about his heart to entrust us with, with things. Now, the application here is that we are supposed to be working and taking care of something for Christ. And we know what our mission is. And we, we, we quote it at the end of every service there. We, we say uh, um, an, an adapted version just helps us remember it easier. It's our job is to go into all the world, go into all the world, baptizing all nations and teaching them. We call that evangelism and discipleship. That's what God has given us and he has entrusted us with this mission and nothing else should be important to us. This should be the number one thing. See, this church is not about you. I hate to break it to you. I know it's your church and I know you feel you have ownership in it, but it's not about you. This church is not about me. I know it's my church and I feel like I have ownership in it, but it's not about me. This church exists because there is a Savior who loved us enough that he shed his own blood to forgive our sins. That's why we are here. And just as importantly, Jesus Christ shed his blood for the people 100 yards that way and 100 yards that way, for the people outside of here. This church exists to carry this precious message of Jesus' spilled blood to the world. Listen, there is no plan B. There is no in the Bible, hey, I hope Christians spread the gospel. I hope Christians tell people about their need for the Lord. There is no, if they don't though, this will happen. 
We are plan A. We are the only plan to spread the gospel. And Jesus Christ has given us this specific address to influence the communities around us. And that, that is what we exist for. And for that reason, we have to come to church with a sense of responsibility. We have to come to church with a sense of mission. When I come here, it is because I have a purpose and it's not about what I want, what I like, or, or what I think. It's about doing what Jesus Christ has called us to do. This was the downfall for the wine dressers. They, they were left with responsibility. They should have been looking out for the crops of the owner. But they turned their attention inward. And they started to think, well, if I keep the fruits, will I be rich? If I do it this way, if I kill the son, will I get to inherit the place? See, their focus was off. They were no longer thinking about their responsibility. They were thinking about themselves. And that is the same problem with the chief priests. They had been entrusted with messages from God. They had been entrusted with leading people to Christ. What well, they should have been doing, leading people to Christ. They had been entrusted with teaching people. But their intentions and their heart had turned inward and taking care of themselves. And they lost what they were supposed to be doing. See, what makes this story so appalling is not that the servants were murdered. What makes it appalling is not even that the son was murdered. What makes the story so appalling is who murdered them. It was those that were entrusted, those with a sense of responsibility that became so selfish they would murder for the sake of stealing. So we have to ask ourselves, are we focused on ourselves or are we focused on our mission as a church and as individuals? What, what is it that we really, truly come here for? Now, Jesus gives us a peek into the heart of the vine dressers here. Verse 38, he says this, As the sun is coming, they see him a long way off. And they, they get in a little group, and they talk to each other. And they say, Here comes the hare. He's going to inherit all of this. And we've been working here. We've been taking care of this. And we want it. And somewhere in the back of their mind, they said, If we kill him... We will get what he has coming. The, the whole reason they're killing people is for jealousy and greed. I want what they have. I want what he has. And that's the reason that they contrived in their heart to murder this poor man. Now, if we talk about the chief priests, we have to ask the question. We know, we know that the vine dressers represent the chief priests. So what is it that they could possibly want to kill the son for? Why should they kill Jesus Christ? We know that they will eventually be responsible for murdering him. See, Jesus didn't really have anything. The vine dressers wanted money, but as a man, Jesus was poor. He, he had no belongings, no fancy clothes, no big house. My, one of my favorite things, God put this in the Bible for us to know. The Bible says that Jesus was comely. You know what that means? He was ugly. Yeah, I mean, I, I could whisper that because it's almost like it sounds wrong. But he didn't even have a flashy smile. He came here with absolutely nothing, so why would they murder him? Well, as a man, he had nothing for them to be jealous of. But as the Son of God, he had something way more valuable. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this picture of heaven, and Jesus is there, and it describes to us what heaven looks like in this moment. And all of heaven is so excited that it bursts into worship. And this is what they sing, Blessings and honor and glory and power to the Lamb of God. That, that's what Jesus got as the Son of God. And if you look into the heart of the chief priest, what did we say is the core of all people? We all want more. More, 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 more. And specifically, it comes to power. So the chief priests hate Jesus because he challenges their authority and he challenges their power. And they're jealous of the glory and the honor that is due to God because they want it for themselves. They, they want it for... for <clears throat> 
They wanted to build themselves up instead of to build God up. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has went through this conflict. Jesus is used to people wanting his honor and glory, even before the earth was formed. In the Bible, there's this character named Lucifer. He's more than a character, he's real. Or we call him Satan, or if you're from the South, we call him the devil. And he said in heaven, he was second only to God himself. He was one of the most beautiful creations God ever made. He shined like a star. He was leader over worship in heaven. But he looked at the glory and the honor and the power that God had. And he said, I want that for myself. And so he rebelled against God. He took the gifts that God gave him, rebelling against God out of jealousy and took a bunch of angels with him. And that spirit of rebellion lives on today in us. Because the truth of it is, at our core, the flesh part of us, we don't want to honor God. We want to honor and build up ourselves. So what happens when we drag that into our churches? What, what happens when we get in the wrong heart of worship? See, a lot of times we think that church is about our, our honor and our glory and our prestige in our power. I have the power in this church because I've been a member here for a long time. I have the power in this church because I'm a pastor. I have the power in this church because my family member is a deacon. It doesn't really matter how many times have we heard people think that they control God's work because of some man-made sense of prestige. That brings us to our second take-home truth. Listen, it's satanic for us. This isn't it. It's satanic for us to think this way, and that brings us to our second point. We are called to worship in a heart of decrease, not in a heart of increase. We are called to worship in a heart of decrease, not a heart of increase. See, these vine dressers, they should have been servants. They should have been workers for the owner of the vineyard. But what they did is they began to look at what can I get out of this? What can I do? What, what, what is going to make my life better? And that's what the chief priests had done with the responsibility that God had given them. They started to look at their position and said, boy, I have a lot of power and I have a lot of authority. What can I get out of it? What are people going to think out of me? Can I get more power? But this is in contrast to somebody we talked about last week. Last week we talked about John the Baptist. John the Baptist lived out in the wilderness, called by God just as much as the chief priest was to be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. He didn't shave. He ate bugs. He wore camel skin. I'm sure he smelled really good all the time. And he set out in the wilderness and he cried out and told people the Messiah is coming. And he baptized people in a baptism of repentance. And he served God. And he had quite a following. People saw him as a prophet. People, people were called disciples of John the Baptizer. But John the Baptist said this earlier in Matthew. He said, I must decrease so that he can increase. I must decrease, speaking of Jesus, so that he can increase. Now, I don't know about y'all, but Jessica and I have two bank accounts. Not, 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 not separate bank accounts. We have two bank accounts at ours. We have a checking account, and we have a savings account. And before you get too interested, there's not a lot in either one. So don't, don't, that's not what we're talking about, okay? But I have this little nifty app on my phone where I can take money, and I can move it back and forth. And I can say, I've got this much money in savings and this much money in checking. And on a month where possibly we come out a little ahead, we'll put a little bit of money in our savings. And hopefully when it comes time to buy a house or a new car, it's there for us. Now, what I've noticed about this app is that it seems to steal from me. When I move money from the checking account, it decreases when my savings account increases. And, and when my savings account, or when my checking account increases, my savings account decreases. They're connected to each other, and there's a balance where one can only go up when the other one goes down. 
And, and John the Baptist realizes, he realized that he had that same connection with Jesus Christ. And he said, the work of Christ can only be increased if my ministry and my wants and me, myself, are first decreased. And you and I are connected to Jesus Christ as a church the same way. His work and His power and His glory and His honor can only increase when we personally decrease. It's the only way that it's going to happen for us and for God here. So I want to ask you a question. Who are we like? Are we more like John the Baptist who worships God with a heart of decrease? God, let me be decreased so that you can increase. Or is it possible we've become more like the chief priest that we come to church and we say, I'm here to increase myself. Which, which one kind of describes us? And in churches across the world, across the nation, and here at Ramsey Heights, I'm sad to say, it's easy to slip into the heart of the chief priest. Where we come to church and it's about me. It's about what I get. And see, that is the problem with Christianity today, is we come to church and we come to Christ for what we can get. When the gospel is clear, we're supposed to come to Christ for what we can give. That's what we're supposed to be doing here, is getting and giving. And it's not necessarily our fault. It's kind of natural to get what you can give. I go to church because I hope it's going to get me to heaven. There are churches, and I won't point out any fingers or names, there are churches across the nation where people go there because a pastor promises that if you come here and you give money, you're going to get rich. And so they come to church for financial gain. Sometimes we come to church for um, things that we like or for relationships that value us. And this is the base of our going through the motions. This is what causes us to go through the motions. You and I are hardwired to take the simplest way to what we want. If I ask you to go to Colton's with me today, after church, how would you get there? Every person in this room would take a ride out of the parking lot, go to the stoplight, and take a left, because that is the simplest way to get to Colton's. There's not a single person who would turn left and say, I'm going to go down to Mountain View, cut across to Melbourne, and come in through the north side of town and go to Colton's. None of us are going to do that, because we are hardwired to take the simplest way to what we want. And if we come to God's house with a heart of what do I get, the simplest way to get something is to go through the motions, or at least we think it is. I'll come and I act right, I'll talk right, I'll give money, and that's going to get me whatever it is I desire. But that's not what we are called here to do. And listen, I want to be clear that the, this can get us to the bare minimum. Sometimes we do the bare minimum for God because we think that's all I have to do. I'll get saved and it'll get me into heaven and I don't have to do anything else the rest of my life. I'll come to church and I'll give my money and I don't have to serve any way else because I give money and I financially support or, or vice versa. I come to church and I, I did a couple of odd jobs or I teach class so that probably precludes me from giving money and we come and we give the bare minimum. And I want to be clear about what I'm fixing to say. God is so good. God, God gives us a richness that we cannot even put into words in what he does in our hearts and what he has prepared for us when we leave this earth. God, God is so good. And that's why we remind ourselves of that every Sunday. He gives and he gives and he gives. But that's not the goal of why we serve God. We don't come to God for him to give. And, and we don't exist at this point in our relationship with him to give. I promise you, if you serve God truly, you will live a life of decrease. You can't do both. You can't serve God truly living a life of increase. If you stand next to God and you compare yourself to His holiness, your self-esteem will automatically drop because you start to see your flaws when weighed against His perfection. If you come to church, your bank account is going to decrease if you're serving God the way He calls you to because He calls us to give faithfully through tithes and offerings. If you, if you um, follow God with all of your heart, the importance of things in this world fade to you. 
We have to be of the faith and the heart that I'm willing to decrease so that he can increase. And here's one of the reasons why. Because when we come to church in a heart of increase and we make it about us, we make it about me being more powerful, me having more things, me having more friends, or me just even feeling better about myself, the focus is all on who? It's on ourselves. And when we go out into the world, this is the reason Christians have a horrible reputation. When we go out into the world with a heart of ourselves, I've got to speed up here. When we go out into the world with a heart for ourselves, these are the Christians that walk around with their noses up and we look at sinners and we say, I wish you were as holy as me. You need Jesus because you are a dirty, rotten sinner. You ought to be more like me. Nobody will come to Christ to that message. Nobody's going to hear it. But when we come to church and we worship God in a heart of decrease, and we put our focus not on ourselves but on the holiness of God, in which place we compare ourselves to God and we realize we are nothing, we leave here humbly. And when we walk outside and we see somebody struggling with sin, when we see somebody hurting, when we see somebody broken, we can come sit down next to them and we say, hey, I'm just like you. The only difference is I found the answer and it's Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life, he can do in your life. And, and nobody's looking down on you for your sin, but God has a better plan for you than the way that you're living now. That is the message and that is the heart that leads people to Christ. That is how we get people to know that they need a savior. What'd you sing this morning, Ms. Glenda? People need the Lord. That's how we teach them that they need the Lord. Now, even the chief priests could understand the concept of the parable. They couldn't apply it to themselves, but they could understand this concept. So Jesus asked them when it's over, once again, what happens when the owner gets there? And they, they throw a fit. They huff and they puff and they turn red. He will surely kill them. He will kill them. And then the second part is more important. He will hire somebody else to take care of the vineyard. This brings us to our third take-home truth. Listen carefully. God takes the power of influence from the selfish-hearted and gives it to the servant-hearted. God takes the power of influence from the selfish-hearted and gives it to the servant-hearted. Jesus, Jesus told them for sure, yes, you guys are right about the people who are taking care of the vineyard. They're going to lose it. He tells them again, he says, because you are selfish like the vine dressers, because you focus on yourselves, because you worship in a heart of increase. He said, I'm taking the kingdom of heaven from you and I'm giving it to people whose heart is right, even if they don't appear perfect and even if they don't appear holy, even if they don't dress the right way and say the right things. You lose your ability to influence the world for God because your heart is not right. Now, what would Jesus Christ say to us if he was to walk in here today? What would he say about our hearts? Are we servant-hearted or are we selfish-hearted? We would tend to try to figure this out by saying, well, what's our influence in the world? We might look at influence and we, we try to measure influence. We might say, well, how many people show up on Sunday morning? That, that tells us about our influence. Or how many new members do we have this year? Or how many salvations do we have? That tells us about our influence. I don't really know that we can do that, though. Because we don't have a set measuring port where we know this church should have 256 on Sunday morning, 26 new members every year, and 18 new salvations. We don't have a set point that tells us that's how many we can have. But here's what I can tell you, and this is, this is straight from the heart. We do not have the power of influence in the communities around us that we desire as a church. We don't have the ability or the capability, something. We don't have the power of influence. There are people in the neighborhoods around us, they don't know why we exist, they don't know who we are, and they don't know what message we're trying to put out. 
I can also say this for a church that has been in the same location for 40 years in the middle of two of the biggest, most populated neighborhoods, two out of the five most populated neighborhoods in Independence County, we don't have the power of influence that we are capable of. So, this asks a question about our heart. If we know that God gives us a power of influence, if God gives the power of influence to the servant-hearted, and we can self-identify that we don't have a large power of influence, what does that say about our hearts? I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'll let you answer it. But if you come to the same conclusion that I've come to, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that we have to sit here and have this conversation, and for me as well. But listen, this is not a message that is supposed to bring you down. This is not a message that is supposed to make you feel bad. This is supposed to be a message of encouragement. This is supposed to be a mes message of, in, of, of rejoicing. And let me tell you why. I believe everything that I speak up here, and I believe that this particular message comes to this particular church at this particular time because I seek God. I'll tell you, five days before we started going through the motion series, five days before we started, I was going to go to the book of Philippians, and I was going to do a series called Stronger Than the Storm, and it was going to be about having joy and hardship, and God came to me again and again and again. He said, give it to me. I said, no, God, I'm not giving it to you. I've got it figured out. I have all of my examples. I know exactly what I'm going to preach and how it's going to be preached and why we need it right now, and God said, give it to me. And so I gave it to him, and I said, okay, where do you want me to go? Because I'm, I'm lost. And I just started praying through books of the Bible. Books of the Bible I don't know anything about. can't tell you anything about the book of Malachi. God is a Malachi. No, thank goodness. I finally come around, is it Matthew? And God said, yes. I said, okay, so Matthew 1, 1. Uh, no, that's not it. Good, because that's the Christmas story. Uh, um, God, is it, is it the Beatitudes? No. Is it the Sermon on the Mount? No. Is it the Olivet Discourse? No. And so I just started flipping through my Bible and going through it, and God showed me, and I believe with all my heart, God brought us to chapter 21, 22, and 23, where Jesus has this discussion with the Pharisees and the religious leaders about their heart not being right. I believe this came from God in this moment. And let me tell you why that excites me. If God gives influence to the servant-hearted, and he's coming to us in this moment, and he's saying, I need you to spend some time to address your heart. I need you to become more servant-hearted. I need you to learn to worship even more in a spirit of decrease. It's because he has a plan to get our hearts right so he can give us more power of influence. I believe with all of my heart, God is preparing this church to do something special. I don't mean getting a few new members. I don't mean filling up the sanctuary. I mean doing something special for his kingdom. But before we can get there, before we can do it, God is calling us to get our hearts right so we're capable of doing it. And so I'm standing here with you this morning, not talking at you, with you, asking about my heart. And I'm asking you about your heart. Are we in the heart that, Brother Danny, are we in the heart that God calls us to? That we can be servant-hearted, that he will give us more power of influence, that we can see people come to Christ? Or are we selfish-hearted where we focus completely on ourselves and our desires and our own power?